Hi, my name is Joe Jackson. I'm an interviewer, journalist, and broadcaster. And for the first decade of this century, I did for the Irish radio station RT Radio 1 a music series titled Under the Influence. Sadly, that title was subsequently used for a similar MTV show. So now, after revisiting the master tapes of those old interviews, I've decided to turn the best into a podcast series called The Music That Made Me. I may even add the subtitle, Made Me Want to Make Music. Either way, what follows is one of those shows, minus music, which for copyright reasons I can't include. Some of the full shows and many of my other radio programs are available on Mixcloud.com. And if you want to read any articles that arose out of these interviews, you can check out JoeJacksonInterviewer.com. Enjoy the show. Sinead O'Connor is one of the most important rock musicians ever to have come out of Ireland. She's also one of the most misunderstood, largely, I'm sure even she'd agree, as a result of her tendency to grow up in public, or at least attempt to. Either way, part of this process is there for all to see and hear on all her albums. From the first in 1987, The Lion and the Cobra, to the latest, Faith and Courage. Sinead O'Connor, one of the first albums you ever loved was a French version of Elvis's 40 Greatest Hits, and one of your favourites was this song, and you can sing along if you want with wooden heart. There's no strings upon this love of mine. It was always you from the start. Treat me nice, treat me good, treat me like you know you should. Cause I'm not made of wood and I don't have a wooden Great stuff. Sinead sang in English and Elvis sang in German. Who cares? Okay, you once, you once said that you realised even when you were, you were only a kid when you heard that album. Mm. And you got this sense from Elvis that he was uh, angelic. Yeah, that he wasn't he wasn't quite human. A lot of the artists that we'd be talking about are people who feel like that about that they sort of appeared almost from God only knows where, you know, that were very uh, unusual, obviously. And even obviously how he looked and everything is quite angelic looking. But there was just something about his personality and everything as well that wasn't quite... But you also would have later yeah. realised, and many did, that Elvis was incredibly sexy. I actually didn't, because I was at the age where I was so young that that wasn't a, a factor All right. in, in the whole attraction to him. It was really his voice. And, and yeah, how he looked, but it wasn't a sexual thing, but he just looked angelic. And he, even later, when you became aware of such things, you didn't look at him that way? No, actually, never. No. Okay, so Elvis, no. the, Elvis the Angel. But you yeah. also liked Elvis the uh, Rocker singing something like Jailhouse yeah, Rock. Yeah, Jailhouse Rock was, is probably my favourite, favourite really of everything that he does. Why? You know, so. I think you once said that it was because he could, uh, and I can quote you here, he could take something shitty like being in prison and make it yeah, seem exactly, joyful. Yeah, exactly. That, that it was a, a story about people in a terrible situation making it fun and despite anything and the, the best way sometimes to get revenge is to be happy and have fun, do you know what I mean? So, and, and dance with a so, wooden chair. Yeah. <laughs> So you like so, Elvis as a rocker too, as well? Yeah, as the I, I, well, I, yeah, but I, I love obviously the whole look of him as well, the whole rock look, the black leather gear and the hair slicked back and all that stuff, you know. Like, I definitely wanted to look like him, do you know what I mean, when I, if, if I ever grew up, which I haven't. Okay, know. all right. But you also said so, that apart from just being that kind of macho rocker, he had that vulnerable and sensitive side, yeah, which is something yeah. that a lot of people miss. Yeah. God, you'd want to be blind, really, though, to miss it, wouldn't you? What, sensitivity? yeah. Like he, he definitely had it in his voice, but certainly in, in his eyes and how he looked and everything too. Yeah. When did you, um, I don't want to go into the details, but you, you have spoken very often of how you felt you had a troublesome childhood. When would you have felt that music can gives me, give me wings to fly above that or give me a sense of release beyond all that? 
when my brother Joseph came home when I was 11 with a copy of Slow Train coming, the Bob Dylan album, and I heard uh, Precious Angel and that just blew my mind and rocked my world and streaked through my universe. Was that the first time you realised music can take you beyond whatever shadows are in your own home life or heart? I think I always did to a certain extent. Like um, my parents were both very musical and both were singers um, but, but they had a very broad range of musical taste as well so there's a, there was a, a kind of a soundtrack going on right from the age of zero as soon as you were born you were in a house listening to records in fact while my mother was pregnant we were all listening to records you know so my mother was very into John Lennon Okay. so from the time I was a tiny baby he had been a presence do you know what I mean and she was also into John McCormick and my father was into like uh, I we used to call him Nicker Boccherini just to drive my dad <laughs> mad but you know Boccherini and all that kind of stuff. So we were hearing things right from a very early age. And I think particularly the, the things that my mother was listening to were more rock and roll and kind of funky. Do you know what I mean? And John Lennon and stuff like that. So and the Beatles were obviously always in the, in the background hugely. Like we used to drive along the car singing Yellow Submarine when I was tiny, like, you know. So when you were in the room, like it's that. possible you heard something like Twist and Shout, which would have been very appropriate. It, I'm sure it would have been. But my father, when my mother was pregnant with each of us, did specific things like with my brother Joe, who is now a very successful writer when my mother was pregnant with him he used to read Shakespeare to her to her belly you know what I mean and read poems to her belly and stuff and I think similar things went on with each of us that you know he concentrated different things on each of us in the belly and I think to a certain extent and what did he read when you were in the belly I think there was a lot of music basically yeah a lot of singing and a lot of music and at that time both my parents would have been singing. But I'm going to play because you want to hear Mr. <coughs> the Beatles and John Lennon singing Twist and Shout. Yeah. We, have, we have a particularly subversive version of this which is the famous night at the Royal Variety performance where John said you and the cheaper seats clapped your hands and you yeah. were upstairs or wherever rattled your jewellery. Twist and Shout. A very sexy song by the Beatles. But again, you wouldn't have realised that at the time. No, not really. <laughs> you uh, you apparently want to make a short movie uh, using that song and describing, presenting the Beatles as the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Yeah, well, I like the idea. I mean, they did. I like the whole thing there in the song to, you know, shake it all out or shake it out, baby and all, because that's really, really what they did. Like, uh, I, I, I guess I would. A couple of friends of mine and myself were talking about making like a 10 minute movie where, you know, you start it off kind of in colour, you know, and you see God up in heaven, like oh, making the arrangements like that are in the book of Revelations all to send the four horsemen of the apocalypse off to change the universe. And then suddenly a big thunder crack and twist and shout is playing. It's all black and white and they're in that club in Hamburg, you know, because I just think the symbolism of it is nice because they did entirely change the face of the planet. Like there was nothing like that before they arrived. And now because of them, there is all of this music which exists now where before the world was very, you know, dull's will really. But Lennon in particular brought the similar change to you because didn't you say he died on your birthday and did yeah. you feel that on the day he died you had the sense that his spirit has entered into me and I must continue what he was doing? Well, I didn't have the feeling that his spirit had entered into me, no, because uh, I wasn't taking any psychotropic drugs. <laughs> but you do now. But, um, you, you believe you had to carry on what, well, he, what he was he was doing. It's, well, it wasn't so much I felt the spirit going into me, but I definitely felt that, yeah, I whether... He, whether he had died or not, I had been hugely influenced by him, not just his music, uh, but the sound of his voice uh, and also a, a lot of the um, muck stirring. <laughs> the muck stirring. Uh, you know, the fact that he showed people that if if one found oneself famous, uh, one could get over the misery of that by perhaps using it to um, do something good in the world and that 
you know, to find yourself famous is a golden opportunity if you choose it to be in, in order to do anything you can, no matter how crazy anyone thinks it is, right. to to um, put some good in the world and change all these kind of very blocked ways of thinking. But would that have been a driving force for you from the outset before you even got started that I am going to use my position to make some kind of political change or effect, to have some effect? Well, to me, it wasn't about politics, but it was about spirituality, the politics yeah. of spirituality, which is really what John Lennon was about and what a lot of the other artists that I was inspired by were about, uh, Bob Dylan you know, and also Bob Marley later on or Van Morrison or that, but okay. particularly Bob Dylan and John Lennon when I was younger in my, you know, childhood and teens, but that, you know, they were people who were dealing with the politics of spirituality so that what I understood from them was that when you, one found oneself famous, one had a certain responsibility to encourage uh, or to inspire a, a spirituality and to represent the world of soul, you okay. know, and spirit and, right. and there being so much more out there. Uh, in inverted commas, then meets the eye. Okay, you know I mean? so you took you took that specifically from a song like Mind Games. Yeah, yeah, very much so. It's, uh, it really does talk a lot about what John Lennon was all about, and it is the song that would describe most what I would like to be about as an artist. Okay, Sinead, while you were listening to that, and he said yes is the answer, you raised your fist in the air and you said yes is the answer. Yeah, I just love that. I love that. It's well, the positive, taking great. the positive from the negative, from all the potential negatives, turning it into something like that. Well, just the, the whole thing of what he's talking about, the idea of putting your soul power into the world and, and lifting veils, you know, and realising how much more there is to life than meets the eye or than we can see materially in front of us. And, but also you know, lifting the spirit. Yeah, exactly. Well, that's the soul or the same thing. But the 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 whole idea of there, again, as I say, there being so much more to life than meets the eye, but I guess I'm interested also in songs as magic, you know, right. and in magic generally. Right. And I think he was as well. And I think he had a great understanding of would magic. You, would you have been like his songs can be magical and I'm listening to him singing about truth and love and peace. When you would have read later, we'd say Goldman's biography, that he actually was not as perfect a human as, well, as people Well, that's what I was going to say is one think? of the things which I think is so brilliant about him and made him so powerful and beautiful was that he was not perfect. Do you know what I mean? That, you know, if, if it's true to say that we were made in God's image, then God is not perfect either. You know, so one doesn't have to be in order to make good use of the soul in the world and in order to create healing or m make space for healing in the world or in order to inspire healing. Okay. In fact, generally, healers are people who have suffered a lot and have not been perfect and have had to transform themselves in some ways. To rise you know. above their flaws. But, you know, for for anyone who exists, you could find 10 people who will say they're a complete blah blah and 10 he'll say they're wonderful do you know what I mean okay so you know it depends on on whether you know someone really as to whether you can make judgments but nobody's nobody's perfect but that's really what makes people so beautiful and certainly even in his records what I love about him is he doesn't strive for perfection he sometimes sings out a tune he sometimes can't reach the note but that isn't the point do you know what I mean it's sure. the, the tone of the voice and the tone of what he's getting at you know okay you mentioned earlier so, also Mr. Dylan and it was Slow Train Coming yeah. which was one of his Christian albums which a lot of fans have turned their back on and maybe Dylan himself has not yeah, stood by over the no, years. Yeah, he didn't stand by it at all, which I think is tragic, really. I think there should be a... a but what was it about marriage. that? You, you once said it was kind of the blend again of, of the sacred and the, and the sexual. It was yeah. like, and for you as a woman in Ireland at that particular point, yeah. you just felt yeah. this stuff has not been addressed. Well, yeah, songs like Gotta Serve Somebody, you know, which is very sexy and bass and drama, you know, and Sly and Robbie and Mark Knopfler, like really beautiful players, really sexy players, the sexiest band that was ever put together, you know. 
So you like the idea of sexy religious songs, obviously. Yeah, the the mix of spirituality and sexuality. Certainly growing up in Ireland, living in a country which is very different now, but even, you know, whatever, 25 years ago, it was a country which, you know, it did very much separate spirituality and sex or, or even sex and love. You know okay. what I mean? So and music was either rock and roll kind of sexy or it was s- spiritual. And, there, and I had never before come across anybody who brought the two together so well, you know. But again, like John Lennon, I think that's why they were so hugely inspiring to all of us, because we know we're not perfect either. So we choose those people who become famous as singers are those who we choose to be our voice, that voice ourselves and our generation or whatever. So, you know, that again, that's why I think they were so powerful, because they weren't perfect. Otherwise, okay. they wouldn't have been chosen. to. And we're going to play Precious Angel. Why that? Uh, I guess just because it's the first tune I heard off that album and it is probably the song of, of all songs that just completely and utterly changed my whole world and made me at the age of 11 want to be a singer and not only want to be a singer, but want to be a priest and want to be, you know, someone who represented spirituality in the world, you know. OK. Sinead, I know you hate us fading that track, but in the name of shining a light on someone, <laughs> we'll go back to talking about it. You said earlier, I mean, you, you talked about that at 11, you kind of got this sense of wanting to become a priest. I mean, what is your response to those people who just go, there she goes again, I wish you'd shut up talking about religion at that level and just sing? Well, I don't really have one. OK. Do you know, I mean, people are obviously entitled to their opinion. I guess um, it's probably understandable why people would think that, given that they don't know me. And there are a lot of, I think, people who do what I do for a living, particularly the females, we have to deal with a, what is a, very similar to racism in that we are presumed to be these publicity-seeking, strop-throwing, you know, prima donna type of people who really have no serious intelligence or serious spirituality or serious anything to give the world, you know. Um, so given that it is a form of racism, I can't really, uh, it wouldn't be right for me to criticise those people. They're talking out of a lack of knowledge. OK, you know but, the, I mean? so but this is core to your belief in music, is that you do see people like Presley, Lennon, Marley and that as kind of mm. uh, religious leaders yeah, in, I see those in as a post-religious age. I see those as rabbis would be a more suitable word insofar as they're teachers uh, of spirituality. Um, and also a lot through a lot of Jamaican music and, and not just Barb Marley, but Sizzler, uh, Budju Bant and a lot of those people. Like I learned all my scriptures through reggae records, you know, all right. you? or through Bob Dylan records, you know. OK, which again, which I think a lot of theologians forget or don't notice that in a post-religious age, a lot of us do take our teachings from our pop icons. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And, and you did from someone like Marley. Well, he was very much a priest and someone who used music as his ministry, which is obviously something that I would uh, think I'm aiming for and have always been since my first record. Um, so but did he give you that sense originally that everyone has a right to a mission and yeah, a right that, to assert that, that, that space? Yeah, that's very much what he, I think, was teaching uh, subliminally and very obviously and consciously that every single person on this earth has a right to a sense of mission and a right uh, to believe that they have the power to change things or to make lightning, you know, uh, as that famous... To shine a light, goes. we can quote Dylan again. So, yeah. So, OK, yeah. so you want to hear us play Ride Natty Ride? Yeah. Why that song okay. above the others? Uh, well, I like the idea of what the song talks about. Again, as Rastafari is very about magic and the, the belief is very much that God is magic, which is very much what I believe also. And that the song talks really about magic and how uh, the death of a person really doesn't mean that that person is gone or that the magic is gone. And how no matter what happens to, to pull you down, when, when you're on a spiritual course, often a lot of things will come in your way to pull you down. But no matter what does happen, um, if you do really have faith and you do really believe, then nothing can pull you down. Although you may, it's, it's the kind of weebles wobble, but they don't fall down. Would, you, would you have taken uh, consolation or solace from a song like this when your mother died? 
No, I didn't actually get into Bob Marley until I was about 23. In fact, I never even heard Van Morrison until I was about 21. When I, I moved to London when I was 17, actually. So I got into Van when I was about 18. My record company gave me a Van Morrison record. I'd never heard him before. Okay. Bob Marley, I didn't get into until I was about 22, 23. All right. um, and then I certainly found him a huge comfort uh, during some years, which were very difficult spiritually for me, just growing out of my 20s or whatever, which okay. is a difficult time for everybody, I think. And a song like so, this particularly. Well, also, this is my funeral song, my big funeral song, When I'm a Very Old Lady and I Finally Kick It. <laughs> I'm going to have this played about 10 times really loud. <laughs> okay. Just so that everybody knows I ain't gone nowhere. So, Joe Jackson here. I hope you enjoyed that fragment from my radio series Under the Influence. If you want to hear more, as I said, check out my website, joejacksoninterviewer.com. <laughs>